Oh, what a morning. Is he worthy? He is. Only a holy God. Our God is holy. He dwells in unapproachable light. And yet he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world so that those who believe in him can know God and can be in fellowship with this God. We looked at a glorious depiction of this reality last time in John 15, verses 1 through 8. I invite you to turn there with me. We saw Jesus using a a metaphor to depict the believer's union with Christ and all these blessings that come upon the one who believes in him through that glorious union. Jesus is the true vine and his father is the vine dresser, the, the father who cuts off fruitless branches and prunes the fruitful branches that they might bear more fruit. Jesus' true disciples are the fruitful branches who are abiding in Jesus. They believe in Jesus. Jesus is their life, and they produce fruit reflective of the one in whom they're abiding. Superficial followers, on the other hand, are false disciples. They are fruitless branches who are not abiding in Jesus. Judas was one of these. He professed to be a disciple of Jesus. He was physically within the circle of the disciples, but he was not a true disciple. He was only an apparent disciple to the human eye. But in his heart, he never gave up his love for money. He was a thief. He was pilfering from the money box. Judas seems to have given the appearance of fruit, Enough to trick the other disciples on the outside, but he was a fake and a crafty fake. But what men cannot see, God sees clearly. God sees into the heart. God knows the motives within. In the language of 1 John 2.19, Judas went out from them, but he was not really of them. For if he had been of them, he would have remained with them. But he went out so that it would be shown that he was not of them. The fate of fruitless branches like Judas is that they are removed, they are cut off, they are burned up in the fire of judgment. Because there is no use for them. They do not fulfill the vine dresser's purpose for his vine. They are not fruitful for his glory because they do not abide in Jesus And what Jesus pictures in that metaphor for us, he goes on to further explain in the verses that follow. And so we'll pick up where we left off last time, beginning in verse 9. He says, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
We thank you for the glorious doctrine of union with Christ depicted in this metaphor of the vine and the branches. This doctrine that makes it possible for Paul to say in Ephesians 1.3 that believers have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And may our hearts be filled with praise to your glory as we Think of the rich blessings that you shower upon your people in Christ. And may we be equipped to bear fruit for your glory as we walk through the passage before us this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the metaphor of the vine and the branches stresses the importance of believers bearing fruit. Bearing fruit is the result of truly abiding in Jesus. It is the proof of one's true discipleship, and it magnifies the glory of one's heavenly Father as they bear this fruit. In our passage this morning, Jesus presses further into the relationship between abiding in Jesus and bearing fruit for God's glory. And what we'll see in this passage is that the imagery of bearing fruit fleshes out in our lives as obedience to Jesus. Our Father is glorified when we bear much fruit. He is glorified when we walk in obedience to Christ. Jesus highlights for us here three motivations that should ignite our zeal to live in obedience to Him. The first motivation for obedience to Jesus that we'll look at is the love of Jesus. Beginning of verse 9. He says, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Jesus begins with his Father's love for him. A glorious love. The Father had declared this love that he has for the Son. When Jesus was baptized, in Matthew 3, verse 17, it says, A voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Just imagine that scene. And the Father declaring His love for His Son, His beloved Son. And in Matthew 17, verse 5, at the transfiguration of Jesus, Peter and James and, and the John who wrote the Gospel of John are all there seeing a similar seen hearing a similar statement a voice out of the cloud that said this is my beloved son with whom i am well pleased listen to him the father in these instances verbalized his great love for his son and jesus also himself spoke about this love that the father has for him earlier on in the gospel of john in John 3.35, Jesus says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. And Jesus describes His Father's love for Him as a love that gives. The Father has given all things into the hand of His Son because He loves the Son. In John 5, verse 20, Jesus speaks again of His Father's love for Him, saying, For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that he himself is doing. Jesus speaks of his Father's love also as a, a disposition to disclose himself 
to the Son. There is a full disclosure of the Father to the Son whom He loves. The Son knows and sees the Father fully. And then moving a couple chapters past where we are in John 15, when Jesus prays to the Father in John 17, verse 24, He says to Him, You loved Me before the foundation of the world. Amazing. This is a love relationship that has existed from before the foundation of the world. It has no beginning and it has no end. The Father has loved the Son from all eternity. He gives all things to the Son. He discloses Himself in full to the Son. And He has loved the Son from all eternity. Now a major implication of this love relationship between the Father and the Son from all eternity that we should not gloss over is that the triune nature of God is far superior to the concept of a God who is only one person alone. A one-person God. The triune God is truly perfect. A one-person God would be less than perfect. Why? Because the triune God has been able to have fellowship based in love for all eternity without the need of anyone else. A one-person God would inherently lack this quality and would be dependent on someone or something outside of himself in order to experience fellowship based in love. And so a one-person conception of deity is far inferior to the one true triune God. The love that exists among the persons of the Trinity is a crucial feature of His greatness. It is an aspect of His glorious perfection as God. And so as we think about this implication of the Father's love for the Son from all eternity, it should move us to worship His majesty, to marvel at His greatness, to praise His perfection, this glorious love. Understanding this should also help us to proclaim the true God to people who don't know Him and to help us to refute the false and erroneous conception of a one-person God who is no God at all. Now Jesus speaks about His Father's love for Him in order to say something about Jesus' own love for the disciples. Back at verse 9. He says, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Wow. Think about that. That is staggering. Jesus tells His disciples that He loves them in the same manner that the Father has loved Him. And what it conveys to us is that we come to know the love of God as we come to know the love of Jesus for us. We know the love of the Father as we experience the love of the Son, because He loves us with that same love. The way Calvin put it is that the love of God was fully poured out on Him, that from Him it might flow to His members. Jesus reveals to His disciples the love of God for them, because He loves them with the same Father, same love that the Father has for Him. And thus Paul can say in Romans 5 verse 8 that God demonstrates His own love toward us 
in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus has shown us the love of God in dying for us. Believer, if you are tempted at times to doubt God's love for you, just look at the cross. There's no greater demonstration of His love that He can give to you than that. Because you had no greater need than to be rescued from the eternal flames of hell for your sin. And there's not a more precious sacrifice that could be given to bear that judgment in your place than the beloved Son of the Father taking flesh and dying for you. I want to tell you something else that is mind-blowing about this love that Jesus has for His disciples. Hebrews 13 verse 8 says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That means that Jesus does not change. And that Jesus does not change means that His love for you is unchanging. Think about that. Because he died for you when you were a sinner and his enemy. So even on your worst day, believer, his love for you remains the same. It doesn't change. That reality should shatter our pride into a thousand pieces. That thought should humble us. It should Strike us. The thought of sinning against such love should break our hearts. This unchanging love of Jesus should melt your heart and cause your heart to yearn to serve Him with all your being. As you see His absolute worthiness. An unchanging love for you. Jesus' vast and unchanging love for us should be an overwhelming motivation for us to obey this glorious one, this glorious lover of our souls. A second motivator for obedience to Jesus that he gives us is his own example, the example of Jesus. Looking back at verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus commands his disciples to abide in his love. And then he describes for them what it looks like for them to abide in his love. Love. He doesn't leave them with some kind of abstract idea of abiding in his love. Abiding in his love is not some kind of mystical, mysterious experience. Jesus gives the disciples a concrete sense of what abiding in his love looks like in action. We could say simply that abiding in his love is fleshed out in obeying him. Now, one might read verse 10 and mistakenly think that it's saying, if we obey him, then he will love us. 
but we've already noted texts like Romans 5 verse 8, which make clear that Jesus loved us while we were sinners, while we were his enemies. There's nothing in us that merits his love for us. The commentator George Beasley Murray's description of this abiding in Jesus' love is, is so helpful. He describes abiding in Jesus' love as rejoicing in its reality, depending on its support, doing nothing to grieve it, but on the contrary, engaging in that which delights the lover. I want to say that one more time for you. Abiding in Jesus' love, how, what is the outworking of that? It, it is rejoicing in its reality, the reality of that love. It is depending on its support. It is doing nothing to grieve it, but on the contrary, engaging in that which delights the lover. Now let's take that piece by piece. So we think about abiding as a synonym for believing. Believing in Jesus' love for you will lead you to rejoice in the reality of that love. Believing in Jesus' love for you will lead you to depend on the support of that love, like the branch abiding in the vine and its support. Truly believing in Jesus' love for you will lead you to want to do nothing that would grieve Him. Rather, on the contrary, you will want to do only the kinds of things that will delight this one who has so loved you. And that will flesh out in doing what he commands. Because his commands reflect his desires for you. Just as abiding in the vine moves the branch to produce fruit, so abiding in his love leads you to walk in his ways. Not the other way around. You're Obedience is the proof that you're abiding in His love. Knowing His love moves you to love for Him, which then drives you to want to obey Him. Judas did not abide in Jesus' love. In fact, Judas showed, Jesus showed great love to Judas in the upper room. If you remember that, He washed Judas' feet. He gave him an honored seat at the table, and he responded to that by going out to betray him. Judas was infuriated that a woman used an expensive perfume on Jesus that could have been sold, and he could have stolen more of that money. He was so angered that he set his heart to eliminate Jesus. The love of Jesus meant nothing to him because he was blinded to it by his own love for money and for his own selfish gain. To abide in Jesus' love is to believe in his love for you. It is to rejoice in that love for you. To depend on its support. To want nothing to do with those things that grieve him. To want everything to do with what delights him, what pleases him. Now, with that understanding in view, let's look at the rest of verse 10. Jesus says, Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. 
what Jesus is doing here is setting an example. He's calling them to abide in him. He's talking about what that looks like. It's fleshed out in them walking in his commandments. And then he lays his own life out before them as the example, just as I abide in the Father's love and keep his commandments. Jesus comes back to his relationship to his Father. And he speaks of obedience to his Father's commandments as abiding in the Father's love. He's spoken of this also previously in John. In John 8, verse 29, Jesus says, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. That's the kind of life that Jesus lived. Always doing the things that were pleasing to his Father. John 10, verses 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay my life down so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my Father. Jesus keeps the commandments of his Father, even to the point of death on the cross. John 12, verses 49 and 50, For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father Himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that His commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Again, keeping His Father's commandments. John 14, verse 31, which we've seen recently but so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father has commanded me. Just look at Him, church. Just think of Christ. He is impeccable. He is glorious. An immaculate life. Every command fulfilled. Always doing the things that are pleasing to His Father speaking what his father commanded him to speak, laying his life down and taking it up again because that was the command of his father. Always doing exactly as the father commanded him. Having come in the flesh, he fulfilled righteousness for us who believe. When he was walking in obedience to those commands, part of what he was doing was doing that for us. Living out that perfectly righteous life that we could never live so that that righteousness could be counted to us by faith. Our sin accounted to Him and paid Him full on the cross and His righteousness counted to us. And in terms of our sanctification and our growth now as believers, there's something else He was doing in this. He was setting an example for us. He says to abide in his love by keeping his commandments just as he kept his father's commandments and was abiding in his love. I want to take you to 1 Peter chapter 2 where Peter speaks specifically of Jesus being an example for us. And the context is submission to unreasonable authorities. What do you do in a situation like this? We look to Christ and see what did Jesus do in these sorts of situations. 
1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 21. Peter says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor is any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were once, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. This is amazing. Jesus faced all sorts of reviling and suffering, and yet not once did he sin in any way. But rather, he entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously. That is the example set before us. In the words of Romans 12, he did not return evil for evil. He was not overcome by evil, but he overcame evil with good. And he did it by faith. He did it by entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That is the example that he has left for us. To trust and obey the one who judges righteously. To leave it to him. Obedience can be very costly. Look at Jesus. No greater case in point. Obedience led him to bear the eternal wrath of God for sins that he didn't even commit. And he did it because the Father loved him and he loved the Father. He did it by entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And indeed, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name. By his obedience, he is bringing many sons to glory. His life shows that obedience is worth it. And listen, as society has given over more and more to a depraved mind, it gets more and more costly. And you will need to look to the example of Jesus and to know that it's worth it to follow Him, to know that it's worth it to stand on the Word of God to know that it's worth it to not return evil for evil, but to entrust yourself to Him who judges righteously as you walk according to His commands. Look at Jesus. He says, follow me. In 1 John 2, verse 6, John says, the one who says he abides in Him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Because his life is worthy of imitation. We should yearn to be like him. Our imitation of him communicates how captivated we are by his life. It is to be seen as an honor to bear fruit that reflects him in the world. Imitating him magnifies his life. 
imitating Him, celebrates the glorious life of perfect obedience that He lived all the way to the cross. And this imitation of Him is only possible when we abide in Him, as we trust in Him, as we believe in His love for us, as we see His example in the Word, and as we pray by the Spirit that we would be strengthened to live like this glorious One, that our lives could magnify His greatness. Now, true obedience must begin in the heart. Romans six seventeen and 18 says, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Judas may have had a lot of outward compliance. None of the disciples suspected anything of him. But it was not true obedience from the heart. He didn't have a heart for doing the things that are pleasing to Christ. He lived to please himself. But Jesus was nothing like that. As I've mentioned before, Jesus said that in John 4.34, it, it was his food to do the will of him who sent him and to accomplish his work. Jesus hungered to do the will of his Father. And oh, that we would have that kind of appetite cultivated to hunger to do the will of our Lord. That we might be obedient from the heart and that it would work its way out into our words and into our actions. That we would be governed by what Christ has commanded as we abide in His love. So we see that Jesus has given us motivation for obedience to Him with His love that He's shown us. He's given us motivation by His glorious example. And third, third motivation that Jesus gives us for obedience to Him is the joy of Jesus. Looking back at John 15 and verse 11. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. All that Jesus had spoken to the disciples about the vine and the vine dresser and the branches and the fruit and the call to abide in his love and to imitate his example, it is not so their lives can be miserable. He wants them to have joy. He wants you, believer, to have joy. And he knows they won't find real joy anywhere else but abiding in him. Just as they needed his peace. Remember that? He said, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. It's the same thing with joy. They need the true joy that only He can supply. And similar to the peace that He gives, there's an objective element to it, a settled reality about it, 
But there's also a subjective experience element of it as well. The basis of their joy is already established in full. They've been forgiven. They were already clean because of the word which Jesus had spoken to them. We saw it back in verse 3 of John 15. Therefore, there is always a basis for them to rejoice. Paul says in Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord sometimes. No, always. And again, I will say, rejoice. Do people in your home know you as one who rejoices in the Lord always? Do people in your workplace know you are one who rejoices in the Lord always? Jesus wants his disciples to have joy. He wants you to have joy. And then he wants that joy to be made full. You would be filled up and overflowing with joy. You know what can hinder you from experiencing the fullness of that joy that Jesus has for you? It's sin. This is why David prayed in Psalm 51, verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Salvation is a joy to us. We can hinder the experience of that joy as we walk in unrepentant sin. Jesus tells his disciples to abide in him, to abide in his love, and to imitate his example of obedience. Because as they do so, they can experience the indescribable joy that comes with true obedience to Christ from the heart. The joy that comes with living a life that is in harmony with how your Maker has designed for you to live. The joy that comes with a clean conscience. The joy that comes with knowing that there is fruit in your life that glorifies your Heavenly Father. You can't top that. It's the blessed reward that Christ bestows on His people as they live in obedience to Him to encourage their hearts, to fill them with joy. What a wonderful motivation He offers for us to walk in obedience to Him. We see it pictured in the blessed man in Psalm 1. He is blessed or happy or abounding in joy and satisfied His mind is saturated in the Word of God. And though he lives in a desert land, he's been firmly planted by streams of water. He's abiding in God. He's bearing fruit. And he's prospering in what he does. He has the joy that comes with a life that digests the Word of God and lives it out. That abides in his love and walks in his commands. Brothers and sisters, again, I want to say Jesus wants you to have joy, His joy, full joy. His commandments are not there to keep you from what is good, which is what the devil wanted Adam and Eve to think in the garden, that God is somehow withholding something good from you. Christ's commands are there to guard you from this sin that threatens to choke out your joy. They guard you from those things which will hinder your communion with Him, the great lover of your soul. 
It was Jesus' joy to live a fruitful life of obedience to his Father's will. And he wants you to experience that joy. He wants you to have the kind of joy that abides with you even in the midst of situations that may bring great sorrow. Look with me at Hebrews 12. We see Jesus experiencing a situation that he despises, and yet at the same time that is a joy to him to do. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Even as Jesus despised the shame of the cross, yet it was a joy for him to do the will of his Father, to accomplish salvation for those that the Father had given to him. It was a joy for him to do. Calvin says it's not that believers will entirely be free from all sadness, but that the ground for joy will be far greater. So that no dread, no anxiety, no grief will swallow them up. This is a supernatural joy. Galatians 5.22 tells us that joy is among the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus mediates His joy to us by His Spirit who indwells us. This one who wants all measure of joy in your life is worthy of our obedience. He's worthy of a life, as we heard in the first hour, Romans 12:1, a life that is a living sacrifice of worship to Him. He's worthy of that. He's worthy of that in how you treat your spouse. He's worthy of that in how you treat your children. He's worthy of that in how you treat your parents, your siblings. He's worthy of that in how you treat your classmates. He's worthy of that in how you behave at work, with your neighbors, at the store, in your car, wherever you are. He is worthy of your worshipful obedience in any and every situation that you find yourself in. And what a joy it is when you serve Him in those contexts and you're bearing fruit that magnifies His glory. What a joy it is to live that life. Now sometimes your efforts are not reciprocated in those relationships. But if you're doing it for the Lord and not for yourself, you can have joy even when it's not reciprocated because you are satisfied in pleasing your King. You see Him as worthy. And that gives you great joy. This kind of joy can be found nowhere else but in Jesus. You must abide in Him. You must believe in Him. An outwardly compliant life will not save you. You need a new heart. You must be born of the Spirit. You must place your trust wholly 
upon Jesus' perfect life, lived in your place and accounted to you as righteousness. You must believe that his all-sufficient death truly satisfied the eternal wrath of God that you deserve for your sin. And you must believe that God raised him from the dead, which demonstrated that he had satisfied that judgment in full for you. That is the basis for great joy, rejoicing. And that can be yours. If you would but repent of your sin and trust in him today, embrace him as a Lord and Savior and follow him. Jesus has given us all the motivation that we need to walk in obedience to him. He has loved us and we should abide in that love. He has lived a perfect example for us and so we should set our eyes on him and the word and we should pray that we would be more like him as we see him there. And he makes his own joy available to us as we are walking in his ways. I do hope that you carry these with you, these motivations, that you would call them to mind wherever you go to freshly motivate your obedience to Christ, especially in moments where you're struggling to obey him, to have these with you, the love of Jesus, the example of Jesus, the joy of Jesus. He has given these to me. They are a precious gift for me to be encouraged and motivated and stirred to live in obedience to this worthy king and to know his grace is sufficient for me in every situation, to know he's paid it all, to know where he's taking me, to know that I have a place in the Father's house. Praise him. He is worthy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is so clear. Your truth for our souls. That you have given us great motivations to walk in obedience to Christ. A love that we cannot fully wrap our minds around. Father, that you would send your son, your beloved son, to bear the wrath that we deserve for our sins and that Jesus would live a perfect life, a perfect example for us. Help us to cherish that. Help us to be humbled by that and to, to hunger to imitate that. And oh, what joy you offer us. We thank you, Lord, that your desire is for us to have your joy and to have it in full Help us to abide in your love. Help us to live out our lives in light of that love, following your example and experiencing the great joy you have for us. Thank you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Worship to un unhinged. I mean, you are, it's going to erupt, as Amir said. It will erupt. But how did he do this? What is the reality? See, here's some common verses we know that I think it's important to end with. And I've got a great quote to finish us up here on this. Notice what Christ did for you. Just to remind ourselves of truth. Remember that song that I, I, I shared with you that Isaiah has led us in. 
is that, is it good to remind ourselves of this? It is. It is. 2 Corinthians 5.21, remind yourself of this. For our sake, your sake, my sake, the sinner's sake, the one who couldn't save himself's sake, made him, him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the price that was paid. The sinless one became sin for us. Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us. That's that same concept, redeemed, that same idea of ransom, paid us from the curse of the law, becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. 1 Timothy 2, we looked at this earlier, but notice the end of it. He desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's God's desire, what the heart of the Savior is. Look at verse 5. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Remember, we connected this with the prayers of the saints, didn't we? The prayers of the saints directly connected to him ransoming us. Isn't that interesting that we have very similar language here as what we saw in Revelation 5 or see in Revelation 5? And now, here's where, here's where this has got to hit home for us. This is where it has to hit home. I find it fascinating that oftentimes when the Apostle Paul, and we're going to see the Apostle Peter do the same thing. We'll see Peter do it first. Well, not technically. Paul probably does it first. But in my notes, it's going to be Peter who does it first. Is when we think of that concept of ransomed, what Christ did for us, there should be then a reaction in the life of the believer. Notice what I'm talking about here. Let's go to 1 Peter. I got it up on the screen. This is really important to take us home today. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Okay? That means while you're here, conduct yourself in a holy, God-fearing way. Be a good example. Live life that is holy, honoring the Lord. Why? Knowing that you were ransomed. The price was paid fully from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with what? Just exactly what we're seeing there in full truth when we're in this moment in Revelation 5, with the precious blood of Christ. That should change the way you live your life, and I live my life. Let me tell you something. This was extremely convicting as I was studying this this week, and it's not just there. Paul does the same thing. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Notice what he does. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. The price was, it was a high price. The holy, perfect, righteous God of the universe took on human flesh. Philippians 2 gives us this clear understanding. Pastor pre- preached on it a few weeks ago. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is what we are to do. And I told you, we're not just going to end with Romans 12 or Romans 11, Romans 12, 1. We know this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. You present your bodies as what? A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. King James says, this is a reasonable act of service. It's, a re- it's reasonable because you were bought with a price. This is your spiritual worship. And here's where we're going to end. This is a great quote. Spurgeon does better than I. So here's where we're going to end. And I want you to just resonate with this. I'm going to put it up on the screen for you because it's kind of small, but kind of large, but follow along. Here's what he says, and this is about true worship, and this just really culminates this for me. Let me do everything as in his sight. I was in, in outward form buried in baptism. I profess then to be dead to the world. Oh, let me try to be so. Let not its pleasures cheat me. Let not its gains enchant me. 
I profess even to be risen with Christ. Oh God, help me to lead a risen life, the life of one who is risen from the dead with Jesus Christ and quickened with his spirit. Now if that be your thought, that is true worship. That is real sacrifice to the Most High. When a soul desires to walk before the Lord in conformity with its vows and gracious obligations, I love that, gracious obligations, not with a view of merit, for it lays all its hope upon Jesus and finds all its merit there, but simply cries, I am his. And I wish to live as one that bears a blood-bought name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're worthy of our praise. We, we bear that blood-bought name. Christ once redeemed. We should love to profess that, proclaim that. I pray that we live lives that are in line with that. That as believers, so many of us here put our faith in your son and, and we are, are bought, we're washed. This is all true for us. And yet our lives don't reflect it. People don't know it. People can't see it. We live lives down here in misery and distraction and in shadow, not knowing what really is true. And when we do, when we remember it, and I pray that, and I confess that I don't always, and I'm sure others do too, we confess that to you. We know that when we do, and when your word is true in our lives, that's true worship, and our lives will then be sacrificed, and our lives will, will be representative of that kind of worship. I pray that that's true for us to, today, and for any in here who, who they don't even know what we're talking about. That this isn't true for them because they don't know you. You don't know them. I pray that today you'll stir in their hearts and that by your grace they can put faith in your son and through his finished work on the cross, a perfect sacrifice, they can know the lamb and they can know the lion and they can know the father and they can know the son and the Holy Spirit and this can all be true for them. And I pray if that is true that we can enjoy that with them today. Be with us now as we go into hour number two, continuing to worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.